Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue to discover the story of the Bible in our current series with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we'll learn more about the nation of Israel from Joshua to 2 Samuel. So let's begin with our message called Promised Land to King David. Almost every nation that exists on earth has a unique and a noteworthy story to tell of the events that gave rise to its formation. The rise of people groups who identify themselves as one people and see themselves as distinct from others follows the events of Genesis 11. There God determined that he will create division of language among people and because of that, Culture, family structures, religious beliefs, and social conventions, unique history, all of these things vary greatly among nations. Nations become distinct and very different from other nations. The positive news that comes from this development is that the human race cannot form into a satanic super society in which strong and evil forces oppress the weak of the earth and impose a one-world satanic religion on the human race. But of course, as we all know, there are negatives. As people groups interact with other people groups, tensions, suspicions, competition over resources, historic grievances, well, all these things only serve to create hostility, eventually resulting in wars. But in biblical terms, the competition between nations prevents the emergence of that which is ultimately evil. As horrible as the divisions of nations is, what is more horrible is the idea that all nations would unite. Consider a modern example. As Hitler tried to establish what he called a Third Reich, his empire was immediately set upon by others who thought it a horror if he should succeed. In this way, that which was evil was ultimately limited by the division between peoples. After Babel, God was so determined that he would limit human power. What I'm leading to is this. The story of the Bible is not just a story of individuals. The story of the Bible reads the way the human story reads. It's it's the story of individual people, to be sure, but it's also the story of nations and religions and people groups with specific languages and unique histories and cultures and practices. And these nations are in conflict with one another. What people believe and value is dictated by the culture in which they live. And people from another culture believe and value something very different. We're all the product of cultural conditioning. And so as the Bible story progresses, a story, as we have said, is the story of an altogether glorious God who creates human beings to rule the work of his hands, and yet his humanity has rebelled. But God was in Christ or in his Messiah reconciling the world to himself. And this story, as we've already seen, has had numerous twists in the plot line. And so today, we're going to trace this story from the book of Joshua to Judges, and then Ruth, and then to First and Second Samuel. Israel now grows from a very large nomadic tribe to the next stage of her existence. She becomes a nation with a homeland, governed by laws that God gave them while they were in the Sinai Desert. In this next section of Scripture, Israel inherits the land of Canaan. Now, from the outset, it was God's intention that His people— the ones he would make in his own image, would fill every habitat on earth with the rule and reign of the one God. That part of the plot line has never changed. But, and this is so important to see at this point, 
This is not Israel's destiny. She was not called upon to rule the whole earth. Rather, her destiny was to occupy the land of Canaan, a land that would come to be called Israel. Now, as we come to the book of Joshua, we see Israel ready to go to battle to capture the promised land. Critics have claimed that the book of Joshua, with its account of warfare, the killing of people groups, that this account is no more than the myth of a tribal deity claiming legitimacy in warfare over others. And so critics point out that Moses had left Israel with a command to utterly uproot the Canaanites and in Deuteronomy 20 to let no one live. Now, all of this, they say, is no more and no less than ethnic cleansing. Now, what do we say in response? Well, it does no good to deny that Joshua and Israel did not utterly destroy the nations before them. It is, it is there in the book, and it's claimed that this is a command of God. Now, to that charge, I would give a threefold answer. First, in the covenant with Abraham, which included the land of Canaan, we see a very clear demarcation of national boundaries. Israel was not permitted to carry out warfare that we see in Joshua with surrounding nations. That's why, for instance, in Joshua 9, when, when the Gibeonites deceive Israel and get them to believe that they come from a distant country rather than the land of Canaan, Joshua immediately makes peace with them. God clearly intended Israel not to rule the earth, but rather to rule the territory given through the promise to Abraham. Israel was to occupy a sacred place among the nations. Her keeping of the law and her worship of the true God was to be an example and a witness to the nations of what the life of God was like. Now, in a small way, that was achieved. 1 Kings 10 records the Queen of Sheba visiting Israel during the time of Solomon. And when she sees what Israel is all about, she's astounded and notices that no people on earth have a God like Israel's God. Indeed, the Old Testament law makes it plain that when foreigners travel through Israel, they're permitted to get food from the corners of the field or glean after harvesters. That was so that the blessing of Israel would overflow to all the nations around them. So whatever we make of the book of Joshua, it's clear that the book has absolutely nothing to do with global jihad. It's a war that is limited to one place on earth, the land of Canaan, within specific boundaries. Second, the warfare that Israel engaged in for the promised land was limited to a very specific period of time. Consider how the Bible deals with this matter. In Genesis 15, 15 to 16, God told Abraham, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You know, the Amorites represented one of the dominant people groups in Canaan before Israel moved them out. And so we have a clear indication that what was going on in the war for Canaan was divine opposition to evil. But God would not allow Israel to prosecute such a war until the evil of these people became so overwhelmingly evil that judgment must take place. Look at it this way. Should we castigate the Allied powers in the Second World War for bombing Berlin to the ground and ending the Holocaust against the Jews? Well, of course not. Defeating Nazi Germany was an act of righteousness because this regime was so profoundly evil. The same is true in the warfare over Canaan. The Bible continually mentions the abominations of the Canaanites and also some of the barbaric practices they had. 
Deuteronomy 12.31 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. You know, it turns out that this practice of human sacrifice was not only common, but it was used to tell fortunes and to inquire on behalf of the dead. In short, the culture that Israel dispossessed was deeply demonic, profoundly evil, and the warfare against it was a righteous act. And so the battle for Canaan was limited in geography, and it was limited to a given time period. And that here is, I think, where we learn the the third lesson. As Deuteronomy ends, Israel is warned that if they become as corrupt as the people they dispossess, God will also drive them from the promised land. And eventually, that's exactly what happened. And so, if you will, the geography that occupies Israel is, in fact, chosen by God to illustrate God's dealings with the whole earth. Imagine a teacher with a very disruptive class. Let's say he decides to punish one of his students as a lesson for the whole class. Now, that, in effect, is what's going on in Canaan or in the land of Israel. What God does there is meant as a lesson book for the whole world. Should we become as wicked as they? In fact, we already learned that lesson when we learned the story of the flood. So let's come back to the book of Joshua. Moses has just died, and the mantle of leadership for the wandering nomadic people of God has fallen onto Joshua. Joshua leads Israel into Canaan to capture the land that God had promised to Abraham. And the book of Joshua will cover three military campaigns. The first has Joshua defeating Jericho and Ai, and thus he cuts the land in half. Then he proceeds to do battle in the south, defeating one city after another as each city falls before the powerful armies of Israel. And finally, Joshua turns north, defeating the cities of the north. And with that, the battle for the promised land is over, or is it? It turns out that we're about to encounter one more twist in the Bible's plotline. One of our listeners wrote to say, this message captures the heart of our awesome God. Thank you so much for this truth, Pastor John. I love the passion you display in expounding God's Word with truth and humility. Feedback like this lets us know that the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are hitting the mark. With God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching and engagement using every effective medium at our disposal. Our special thanks to all those who listen, watch, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment to Bible teaching is essential. Please continue to stand with us with your prayers and support. You can join us in this effort with your financial gift by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The last half of the book of Joshua seems technical. Joshua assigned territory to the 12 tribes that make up the people of Israel. And to the casual reader who's not really paying attention, one might think that the conquest of the promised land is over. But it's not. What Joshua accomplishes is the defeat of the Canaanite power structure. 
He destroys the major cities, but many other cities remain. Each tribe was then called upon to defeat whatever nations remained in their allotted territory and to utterly drive them out. But that was not accomplished. After the death of Joshua, much of the work is left undone. So, for instance, Judges 1.27 tells us who it was that Manasseh did not drive out. And then in verse 29, who it was that Ephraim did not drive out. And then in verse 30, who Zebulun did not drive out. See, one of the most outstanding examples is the city of Jerusalem that remained under the control of the Jebusites all the way until the time of David. Almost 400 years later, it was in the territory of Judah. And with this as the reality, the book of Judges tells the account of how Israel gradually evolved into a period, well, that can only be described as her dark ages. Human life became cheap. Idolatry was rampant. The knowledge of God, the God of Abraham, became rare. Ignorance is common. And the hope of a people uniquely belonging to God, a culture reflecting the glory of God, was almost completely lost. So from about 1382 B.C. until 1051 B.C., a period of about 330 years, Israel follows a habitual cyclical pattern. First, Israel does evil in God's eyes. Then God allows them to fall into defeat to the nations that are left in the promised land. These nations now dominate Israel. Then Israel cries out to the Lord for help, and then God sends a deliverer or a judge to defeat their enemies and reestablish the relationship with God and his law. And then the land is at peace. And then the cycle repeats itself, and Israel again does evil in the eyes of the Lord. See, that cycle continues in this fashion, except that the cycle gradually moves further and further downhill. At first, there are judges like Othniel and Ehud, but eventually there are judges like Samson, whose real fight with the people of Canaan has very little to do with the law of God and the promise to Abraham, but because the Canaanites stole his woman from him. And so the quality of the judges is gradually deteriorating. But just when we think that the amazing story of the Bible is coming to a very bad end, we encounter the little book of Ruth, four small chapters that tell of a Moabite woman who converts to the God of Israel and who finds God to be completely faithful. See, God is still at work in evil times. And then finally, when we come to the book of 1 Samuel, we come to the spot where if we didn't know the whole story, we would think that the story now comes to an end in utter failure. 1 Samuel 4, an event that occurs in 1060 BC, records a battle between Israel and the Philistines, a coastal people in Canaan. The Philistines defeat Israel, but they do one more thing. They capture the Ark of God, the, the symbol of the altogether glorious God, and they place that Ark in the temple of their God, Dagon. It is as if the God of Israel, the great creator, has himself been humbled to be no more than one of the tribal deities of the nations around them. I can think of no moment in the Bible, outside of the death of Christ himself, in which one might be tempted to think that the story is over. And it would have been over had God himself not intervened. Every morning, the statue of Dagon is found to have fallen over and lying face down before the Ark of the Lord. And finally, the Philistines are plagued with diseases and in terror send the Ark of God back to Israel. The events of First and Second Samuel then move the story forward. Israel's last judge is, is not worse than the ones before. He, in fact, becomes the symbol of biblical hope in Israel. His name is Samuel. 
And his greatest accomplishment, he taught the word of the law of the Lord God throughout Israel and was able to unite the disparate tribes into one unified nation. You know, under Samuel's leadership, Israel began to defeat the nations of Canaan. And under his leadership, there's a revival of hope that the promises of God made to Abraham might yet indeed be fulfilled. But Samuel also has a great failure. As he becomes an old man, it becomes plain that his sons don't share his passion for God. And Israel, in desperate fear that the cycle of 330 years of failure under the judges were about to repeat themselves after the death of Samuel, decide to act and anoint a king. Now, it's important to note when reading the biblical account that having a king was not wrong. Deuteronomy 17 in the law makes provision for a king. Indeed, it was anticipated that one day Israel would have a king. What's missing in the story is that in Samuel's day, Israel wanted a king so that they could be like other nations, and that was the reason. And so Israel's first king is a horrible failure. He's driven by uncertainty, fear, insane jealousy, and is not confident in the promises of God. But God is not done. After the tragic death of Israel's first king, King Saul, David, the greatest king of Israel, ascends his throne. David reigned Israel from 1010 until 970 BC, a period of 40 years and a century before the coming of Jesus. David first wins a series of remarkable victories over Israel's enemies and for the first time ever secures Israel as the nation that rules in Canaan. He establishes her borders and sets up a secure government. In one of his greatest victories, he drives the Jebusites from Jerusalem and sets it up as his capital. He restores the Ark of God to the tabernacle in Jerusalem and ignites a holy passion for his nation to be the people of God, submissive to divine law and with a heart hunger to know and revel in the God who loves them. He writes many of the Psalms in the book of Psalms and leads the nation in a passion for worship. Now, the highlight of his career is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which becomes the next great covenant of God. You remember the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses and the giving of the law, and now comes the covenant with David. David has had it in his heart to replace the tabernacle with a temple, a formal structure built for the praise of God. At first, he believes he has permission from God to do it, but he discovers that the privilege will be delayed and be given to his son. In the meantime, God tells David that David will not be building God a house, but rather that God will be building David a house. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. And then on to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And what was David's response to that? Well, in verse 19, he says, and this is a loose translation, but an accurate one, this, O Lord, is your charter for the human race. David suddenly grasped what God was saying. Back when the human race began, God made a promise to the fallen and sinful human race. The offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then God made another promise in the time of Noah. The people of God would never be extinguished from this earth. And then God made a promise to Abraham. 
Abraham's descendants would receive a land, and they would be the source of blessing to the whole earth. And then to Moses, God makes another promise, that he would reveal his will for obedience to his people. And then after so much time had passed, David suddenly grasps what God is telling him. His kingdom in Israel would become the throne that would govern the entire earth. One of David's offspring was the long-expected one who would crush Satan and rule over this earth in the power of the great creator God. And there is the Bible storyline in full detail. God was in Christ, or in his Messiah King, reconciling the world to himself, and now it was revealed from which line the Messiah would come. You know, some of David's Psalms reflect what he already knew to be true. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, David writes, The Lord said to me, You are my son. This day I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Or Psalm 110, verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. And so as the reign of David comes to an end, as he lies dying, he appoints his son Solomon to reign in his place. And just like when Eve gave birth to Cain, the question must have been this, is this the Messiah? Is this the one that comes to crush Satan? All Israel must have been asking at the coronation of Solomon, is this the ruler of all the earth? But then again, the Bible will deliver another one of its surprising twists in the plot line. John, thanks for your message today. You know, there's a recurring theme in your message today, and I think it's that one of, of accountability. People are being made accountable. Uh, so how do we apply that theme to our lives today? Yeah, there is that overwhelming theme that you read through the Bible as you pay attention to its storyline. There is the, the moment of judgment uh, in the time of the fall. We have this moment of judgment, the people living in Canaan. You have another moment of judgment, especially in the destruction of Jerusalem. So you have these moments which are a foretaste of the final judgment of God. And each one of us should remember that God is not to be trifled with. I think there's anything that I read in the story of the taking of the promised land is there came a point in time in the history of the Amorites or the Canaanites in which God would no longer put up with this rampant kind of evil that was happening there. And he did send a force against them to judge them. I think that's the story. Well, we have much to look forward to in the days ahead with this series, The Storyline of the Bible, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Following Christ involves offering Him everything. Therefore, it naturally follows that following Christ includes our money and our resources. Well, this month, we're excited to offer you Dr. John Neufeld's entire CD series, God and Money, as our free Bible teaching resource, and, and all you need to do is ask. In this five-message series, Dr. Neufeld describes the advantages of money, its inherent dangers, and how we should manage our money based on an understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. Break down some of the myths and open up your heart and mind as you listen to this important series, God and Money. Ask for your free copy today. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.